Welcome to the Islam and Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to support us, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. This episode, we have a recording of our 7th International Islam and Liberty Conference, the Islamic Case for Religious Freedom, held in Jakarta. Eugene Yap, based in Malaysia, is currently the Director of Religious Freedom and Liberty... Uh. Eugene Yap, based in Malaysia, is currently the Director of Religious Freedom and Liberty Partnership. He also serves as a board member of Kairos Dialogue Network, a faith-based non-profit organization dedicated to the advancement of Christian-Muslim relations in Malaysia. He is part of a panel, Non-Muslims in Muslim-Majority Countries, chaired by Hakan Koru. His topic is Reflections and Perspective from Malaysia. Good afternoon and uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Moderator. Thank you for the uh, uh, kind invitation. Thank you to uh, uh, Ali Salman uh, and the uh, representative Dr. Kamali and uh, Dr. Azam from uh, IAIS for having me here. For our Muslim uh, friends, both uh, from overseas and in Indonesia, Wassalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Selamat sejahtera kepada semua, and uh, I hope that you had a good lunch. My subject this afternoon is actually on uh, reflections of a non-Muslim from, uh, from in the context of a Muslim-majority country. And I'd like to speak uh, from the Muslim-majority country of Malaysia. Uh, as many of you would know, Malaysia is a Muslim-majority country. We have something like 68, 67 to 68% of Muslims. Uh, and this includes what we call the ethnic Malay, uh, some tribal uh, people from our east side of Malaysia, the regions of Sabah and Sarawak who are also Muslims. So combining the Malay ethnic people, the tribal people, as well as what we call the indigenous people, the Orang Asli, it makes up something of a total of something to 67 to 68% of our Muslim, Muslim population in Malaysia. At the same time, the minorities in Malaysia uh, is about, well, 40%. And this comprises of, say, the Chinese ethnic groups, something like 24% right now. And, uh, the, and it comprises the Buddhists, the Taoists, and the, what you call some of the ancestral worship religion from the Chinese tradition. The Christians also will have something like 10%. The Hindus say about 7% and so. And the rest will be what we call a combination of 80s, uh, some people who are and who are from the tribal religion, more particularly applying to the natives of Sabah and Sarau and our indigenous people called the Orang Asli. So with this simple statistic, you will actually see that while Malaysia is a Muslim majority country, we have huge and quite a large significant portion of non-Muslim. So a simple ratio will be 60-40. 60% majority Muslim population, 40% non-Muslim population. Now, uh, the reason why I'm highlighting this is simply this. This is unique. Uh, what you see is that many Muslim majority countries, they have huge Muslim majority. but when it comes to non-Muslim minorities, the other portion of non-Muslim minorities, the percentage of non-Muslim minorities are actually very small. But in the case of Malaysia, this is not the case. We have a huge Muslim majority, but we also have a significant non-Muslim 
are minorities, something like 40%, something like 60%. So you can imagine in this uh, particular context, uh, the challenges that are presented to Malaysian, uh, uh, not just the political system, but the social religious uh, environment that we are living in, 60% Muslim, 40% non-Muslims. Let me just highlight to you two major concerns. There are many, but uh, I would sum it up to two major concerns uh, that non-Muslim minorities in Malaysia have with this significant uh, Muslim majority of 60%. The first concern is what I call fear and suspicion of Islam. Fear and suspicion of Islam. This is very peculiar uh, when it comes to the uh, non-Muslim uh, minorities in Malaysia. There is a fear and suspicion of Islam. Uh, it is unfortunate that due to the notion of the politicization of religion in Malaysia, uh, what we call political Islam uh, and the process having been uh, effective for the last maybe 30, 40 years, uh, where the religion of Islam is highly politicized. It's highly politicized to effect support for certain elites, certain groups of people due to this politicization of religion, there is now a bit of an ideology in the minds of non-Muslims minorities. And that ideology is simply this. Uh, Islam is supreme and Islam will trump non-Muslim rights and interests. Now, I'm not saying that this is right, now this is wrong, but simply just to highlight to you that as far as uh, non-Muslim experience in Malaysia is concerned, there is this perception in their minds Islam is master, Islam is Lord. They will impose their will on us non-Muslim and eventually they will trump our rights and our interests. Let me give you a very practical example. Just about a month or two ago, uh, the government of Malaysia through the Ministry of Education wanted to introduce uh, what they called the calligraphy of card. All right, and you all know, isn't it? The Muslims will know. They cal cut calligraphy into the, uh, what you call curriculum, the study curriculum in the national schools and the non-national schools. So cut is Islamic uh, calligraphy. It's just calligraphy. Now, when the announcements were made, immediately the non-Muslim community protested. And what did they protest? They protested that this is Islamization. Islamization being imposed on non-Muslim minority. Then the defense came and said, the party said, oh no, cut is not Islamization. It is merely calligraphy. Uh, it is part of what is called Jawi. And Jawi was a form, a written script of the Malay language Bahasa Melayu uh, before it was Romanized. The non-Muslim community, the Christian community, the Buddhist and the Chinese Buddhist community immediately reacted and said, this is nonsense, this is a lie. In effect, it's just the imposition of one religion, one culture, and opening the floodgates for Islam to influence non-Muslim culture. Now, we all know Jawi is a written script, an expression for Bahasa Melayu or Bahasa, uh, the, the Bahasa of uh, the archipelago. But it has been turned from a simple script 
into an understanding, into an idea that, well, there's this, colon, this colonization or this new colonization or whatever you want to call it from the majority Muslim community to the non-Muslim minority. The fear and suspicion is there. Secondly, there is also in the minds of many non-Muslim minorities in Malaysia, what I call a reactionary and defensive posture, a reactionary and defensive posture. Now, let me give an example. Recently, the, there's this Congress that was held in Malaysia. It was organized by several of our public uni universities, I think four or five of them, and it involved the, even the vice-chancellor vice of many of these universities. So they all got together and said, we need to organize a Congress. Now, what is this Congress all about? This Congress is a Congress to unite the Malay race, to unite Muslims. So they call it the uh, Congress of Malay Dignity and so on and so forth, uh, Congress Marwa, uh, Malayu. And in that Congress, what was expressed is two, two things. First is, Malaysia is for Malays only. Malaysia is for Malays only. Now this came out very clearly in the Congress. Um, and as it turns out, it's just nothing more than a political Congress, but the sentiments and the views expressed in Congress is basically just two things. Malaysia is for Malays only. Malaysia is for Muslims only. All other race and other religious uh, minority groups other than Islam are what we call, uh, they, they use the word pendatang, foreigners or new or comers into the land, you know, visitors, you are pendatang. But the ownership of the country of Malaysia is only for Malays. So this was held. Big reaction. Immediately, the non-Muslim community, particularly the communities from our east side of Malaysia called Sabah and Sarawak, uh, Sarawak and then uh, formerly Sabah, North Borneo, they organized another Congress. And that Congress is called Religious Freedom and Nation Building for Minorities. Now you can see, one talks about Malay for Malaysia, the other is a reaction to react to the Congress. So this is just one example, but there are many other instances where something is said, the next day, another reaction comes forth. So a reaction and defensive posture. But I want to just uh, stop here and I want to say that all is not bleak, all is not pessimistic, all is not without hope. But there is also a glimmer of hopes for Malaysia, Malaysians, particularly the non-Muslim minorities. Uh, with the change of government made the 9th last year, um, it is true to say that uh, generally Malaysians have witnessed a greater space for engagement, particularly for the non-Muslims. And so i just like to highlight uh, just two particular opportunities where non-Muslim minorities in Malaysia can actually engage in a very positive way that can actually go, that can take the nation forward, can take the community forward. The first is this, uh, with the change of government, I think the Islamic bureaucracies and the religious authorities have also slightly opened up. We have uh, the Minister of uh, Religious Affairs in our country, uh, Mujahid Rawa, propounding now a concept of Islam, what he calls as Rahmatan Lil Alamin. 
all right? The com Islam is merciful and compassionate to mankind and universe. Now, this is based on his understanding of Makassid Sharia. So with the Makassid Sharia, he's able to propound this idea that uh, Islam is really Rahmatan, Rahmat. And, and it, it is applicable to the whole of Alam, that is the universe and mankind. So he is trying to project a compassionate, merciful picture of Islam. And as Islam as a blessing to everyone, including the non-Muslims. This morning, we talked about the importance of the fiqh, and even yesterday, the fiqh of citizenship, the importance of citizenship. So with this sort of uh, idea that is now being, the discourse that is now being projected into the Malaysian public square, there is opportunity for non-Muslim minorities to now say, hey, is Islam, is Rahmat, meaning that there's room and space for non-Muslims to find their place, not taking on the defensive posture that we are talking about and able to now overcome the fears and suspicions uh, for non-Muslims. So this is a reflection. This is a, uh, something that I think is positive, but it has yet to be really, the potential of this has yet to be really explored, uh, made use of and realize its full potential. The second thing is that there's loads of other documents that have come about. Uh, this morning, we talk about the 1618 uh, uh, resolution, uh, but there are also other documents that actually talks about opportunities to engage non-Muslim going forward. I have in mind here the Marrakesh Declaration, which have not been highlighted in this conference. The Marrakesh Declaration is a positive document. Then there's also the other document called the Faithful Right, the Beirut Declaration and the Faith uh, for Rights documents. So these documents uh, expand a certain understanding for non-Muslims and it present potentials and opportunities for non-Muslims to engage with Muslims to go forward. And I think in my opinion, if this is, uh, we engage it correctly, we make use of the opportunity in a creative manner, uh, there will be a great positive movement that can come forward. The question here is this, religious freedom right now in Malaysia is viewed as bad news. You know, it's so sensitive, it's just bad news. The challenge is with these documents, with Rahmatan Lil Alamin, with the Marrakesh Declaration, with the Faith for Rights and many other initiatives, the challenge here is to turn this notion, this discourse, which says religious freedom now is bad news. We need to now turn it from religious freedom is bad news to religious freedom is good news for everyone, for the communities, for the Muslims and non-Muslim alike. This is the challenge, the critical challenge they are facing Malaysian in the light of some of this development. Maybe have a blessed and fruitful time of discussion after this. Thank you. Salam. Um, thank you, uh, both presenters. I came a little late uh, during uh, Mr. Eugene Yap's presentation. Uh, perhaps you might have covered the part that I'm now going to speak about a little. I also live in Malaysia about this Malay Dignity Congress. I was there and I was looking at newspapers. I think that uh, some of the Malay leading figures like uh, Mujid, Manir Mujid, he published an article. He's a Malay, but he criticized that Congress. 
And uh, Malay people were not all really happy about that kind of uh, um, event. But uh, <clears throat> there is a Malay kind of, uh, uh, you call it resentment. Again, during the Mahathir era, the feeling is that uh, the Chinese have uh, you know, become quite strong in the government and they are economically already the dominant, uh, uh, you know, they, they dominate the economy. Uh, if you sort of have 10 billionaires in Malaysia, nine of them are Chinese, one is maybe a small Malay. Yeah. This is a question of the kind of uh, yeah, distributive justice, that kind of long-term issue. But uh, <clears throat> uh, the pattern until then was that the Malays under AMNO, they were politically dominant. Once Mahathir, you know, toppled AMNO, his PH, Pakatan Harapan government, they are no longer the Malay in political power. Now they feel that they have lost political as well as economic situation. <coughs> it was a bit of a kind of a defensive voice rather than, maybe you mentioned this, but I live in Malaysia and I thought maybe this might be relevant, this information. Yeah, uh, thank you for the uh, two uh, comments. And uh, I, don't, I don't think they are questioned, but they are more comments from my two fellow Malaysians. and. Uh, now, uh, I, I just want to say something uh, uh, to what uh, the comments or respond to what Professor Kamali said. Uh, I did not touch on the sentiments of the uh, Malay majority Muslim population because that was not the subject that I was given to. But uh, the sentiments nevertheless that expressed by Professor Kamali is true, uh, especially in the area of the, the two areas. One is the area of distributive justice and that there is some truth in it. However, I would just also add that uh, even under the issue of distributive justice, uh, it is not just the Malay Muslim community that is talking about uh, or complaining about this issue of distributive justice. There are poor, what you call orang aslis. There are poor, what is called the anak negeri of Sabah, Sarawak, way in the interior. Uh, and even certain segment of the Hindu Chinese communities that are still uh, complaining about this question of distributive justice. So very often the discourse is, yes, the Malays in the Felda and the Kampong's uh, villages are, are, are in need of the, 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 the benefits and all, but it doesn't reach them. Uh, but there are also other communities that are equally uh, in need. Uh, and I'm referring to the people in Sabah and Sarawak, uh, way in the interiors of their jungles uh, where in the case of Sarawak, their land is taken away from them. That's one. Uh, number two, the perception of the PH government uh, now, uh, the new government, and because of the new government, the uh, Malay Muslim community is marginalized in terms of political power is again another perception. Uh, I can say also say that the same uh, with the new PH government, uh, the key ministries such as the economic uh, affairs department is under a Muslim and the rural development is also under a Muslim and the key benefits seems to be within lodged within a certain elite. Uh, and I have this in mind, the GLCs, uh, Professor Terence Gomez has 
conclusively, conclusively demonstrated that the GLCs, the government-linked company, are all linked uh, in a way to uh, certain political elites. So uh, there is a perception both by the Muslims as well as the non-Muslims that they each other is unfair. So I think the key here is that there is a perception that this thing needs to be overcome. Uh, political power is not all concentrated on one race, one religion. Uh, either side. Uh, I think the truth of the matter is that they are actually more fragmented now than actually concentrated on a particular point. That's my point. Okay, I'm sorry, Eugene, I was also late about your last few sentences that I turned out. Um, I think one of the things that I would like to ask you, perhaps the experience of Malaysia and Indonesia that unite the people of different religious and its backgrounds. One of the important thing is in Indonesia we have the Pancasila, and in Malaysia we have Rukun Negara. But Pancasila was the basic structure that formed with the independence of Indonesia. But uh, whereas Rukun Negara was introduced later after the 1969 incidents, that would be something that we did to make a comparison. But, but I only uh, took up one of your last few words because I just I entered late. You mentioned about this Marrakesh Declaration and also this, uh, I mean, the vision of the new government, the so-called Malaysia Baru on this Rahmatan Lil Alamin, which I suppose that the Marrakesh Declaration should be well received and we are promoting that because it takes into the position of the Sahifah Madinah uh, of, of that nature for the Muslims and non-Muslims, especially for non-Muslims uh, living in the majority Muslim country. Number two, uh, uh, to Azam, uh, yes, uh, the Rukun Negara uh, was actually, the actually came about after the 1969 May riot, you know, when uh, the then uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Ghazali Shafi, you know, the, went to Indonesia and actually looked at the Pancasila and then brought elements back of it. The problem was that uh, since it actually uh, was a document that created after the 1969 May riot, from the perspective of non-Muslim minorities, they see this document as nothing more than propaganda to appease the minorities. Now, I'm not saying it's right, but that's how many non-Muslims now look at it. Uh, the more crucial document that I think people will now want to concentrate on uh, instead of just the Rukun Negara is actually the constitution and more recently what we call the Malaysia Agreement of 1963, where the uh, eastern state of Sabah and Sarawak came together to form Malaysia. Now, the Rukun Negara uh, by itself is a good document, but unfortunately, the political overplay has concentrated so much on the constitution and the interpretation of a constitution. It's interpreted in a certain way. And now the rise of what you call the Malaysian agreement uh, has complicated that. Now, uh, with these two contests, the Rukun Negara, I think, is now uh, much marginalized or maybe even forgotten by some, you know. I remember in the days when I was in school, we were all forced to uh, memorize the Rukun Naragara. But today, that's not the case. So that's the downside of it. Uh, but like I said, Marakash is there. We need to overcome that. I think Mujahid is well aware that 
Malakas is part of the uh, Islamic declaration in Morocco by the Muslim scholars and leaders and all. But the challenge then is this, how then do you institutionalize it? Uh, that is something that I must say, uh, unfortunately, is still lacking in Malaysia, but it's just one and a half years of the new government. So we need to work at it. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all we have for this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a like or a comment wherever you like. It would really help us out. And if you want to explore more on the Muslim case for freedom, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. You can also support us through a donation button on the site. Thank you for listening to this podcast.